Hello, hello. I hope you are well. And uh, if we can uh, bring the lights up, that would be helpful so people can actually see the Word of God. That'd be good. Um, And less of me, more of Him. Okay? That's the goal here. Um, Acts 17 is where we are. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be the one at the end of the rows. Uh, poke your neighbor on the shoulder gently, and uh, they would be happy to give you one. And if you don't own a Bible, we have giveaway Bibles out in the foyer out there we would love for you to take and um, have as our gift to you. So. We um, are going to be in Acts 17, and today I want to do something a little differently. I would like, instead of reading the text to you, I would love for us to read the text together. So, uh, we are in Acts 17. We're going to read verses 22 through 31. And I will begin us, and then you can uh, jump right in when you feel ready. So, Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 31. We believe this is the Word of God, so we are going to be reading God's Word to His people. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Let's pray. O oh God, these are Your words. Pure Without error, unfailing, tried and true. These are your words to us. And so I plead that now what has come out of our mouths would transform our hearts. And that there would be no leaving here the same. There would be strong sense of your presence and your power at work in each individual's life and in this family that we are in as a church. And so, Lord, knit us together. Break down disunity. Encourage the faint-hearted. Grant peace where there is strife. Comfort the afflicted. We pray, O oh God, show off Your power and Your might that we might continue to trust You. In our weakness, we might trust that Your strength is what we really need. So now speak to us from Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, I was reading USA Today. A 20-year-old woman was dying of a brain tumor the size of a tennis ball. And she was given a few weeks to live. And this woman had gone through the radiation and the chemotherapy and just nothing was working. And so the doctor came to her with just a few weeks left after already delivering the message that she will not survive. And they said that there was an experimental treatment that they would like to try. 
And so they did this experimental treatment where they took the polio virus and they injected it into the tumor and it completely killed the tumor and now this woman is in total remission. Remarkable. Remarkable. And I just began to think all the different components of what kind of brought that together. There was this message coming forth that healing was possible, but the doctor had to go to this woman who he's already delivered the death sentence. What would it be to kind of get hopes up and then, you know, douse them again? you just like, should I really even do this? What, what's going on? So he's, but he's walked with her for this entire journey. So he's got to know her. He knows her heart and what her emotional uh, capabilities are. And so he goes to her and he, he brings her this message, this message of what he thought was going to work and a message of potential hope. And then you begin to process it from her point of view, not just the one, him who was the sharer, but the the one who was receiving this message. You know, too good to be true, sense of skepticism, a little bit of fear, um, just a lot of unknowns. How are you going to receive this? Will you reject it or will you say, yes, let's try this? All because this message of hope is out there. Hope that maybe you'll live just a little bit longer. And I began to think about how this lines up with what Paul was doing. He was taking a message of hope, but it was not a message of temporary hope. Because any message that says, you know, our life can be prolonged here on this earth, we know it's only a temporary fix, right? Because everyone will stand before the King, will stand in judgment, and we will be ushered into eternity with God or eternity separate from God in heaven or hell. There's no kind of in-between, no purgatory, no way you can kind of work yourself into one of those scenarios. It's faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone that will get you with Him or there's rejection of Him that will separate you from Him forever. This is the story of the gospel, but our lives need to have an answer for eternity. And Paul knew it, and his life was gripped by this message that Jesus can rescue for eternity. And so he took it. He was the sharer. He took this message. And then there were those who received it. Some of their receiving, quote-unquote, was just outright rejection. And other receiving was a sense of examination. Others was resistance and then taking it all in. What we're going to do as we look at Acts 17 today is we're going to actually look through three different lenses over the same text. Lens number one is receiving the gospel message. How did people receive the gospel message? How was it received? The second idea is sharing the gospel message. How then was it shared? As we look at how Paul shared that message, how did he share it? And then the last one is embracing God as the gospel message. He is central. He is the the good news that is to be taken. There is no good news. There is no love apart from God being seen as the greatest hero and central figure of this world and of our lives. So, the question that's out before you is, what will you do with the gospel? How will you receive it? How will you share it? And will you center your life on the central figure of the gospel, who is God Himself, Jesus Christ? So, let's look at it together receiving the gospel message. How was it received? Well, we we jump into Acts 17. Those of you who are new, we kind of going through uh, books of the Bible and we just kind of let these passages come to us and let that message then kind of drive it because we do believe this is the Word of God. So we just finished Acts 16 last week. We are in Acts 17. God has saved people radically and significantly of all different spectrums of education and of economic stature. And now... We have Paul and Silas and Timothy taking this message out of a town called Philippi and kind of moving it forward deeper and deeper into what is now the country of Greece. And so we are there and it says, verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. 
Each one of these places was probably about a day's journey on foot. So they would go about 25 to 40 miles on foot. They would go and they would deliver this message. And then now they end up in Thessalonica. Now Thessalonica was the capital city of what was called Macedonia, which is now present day Greece. And so they came to Thessalonica and it says where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now if you recall in the town of Philippi it was mostly Greek speakers, mostly Greek in their ethnicity and so there weren't any kind of synagogues. They had to just go to places of prayer where they might begin to engage people about religion. Well here the city is bigger. It had an influx of Jewish people. There were synagogues and so what better place to start talking about religion and how Jesus is your hope than a place that's already talking about religion. And so he goes into these synagogues where there was regular dialogue, and that's what he did. And it says here that, and Paul went in, verse 2, and Paul went in as was his custom, this is what he did in every town that had a synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now he stayed longer than three Sabbath days because what's really helpful about the book of Acts is that it not only helps us understand the storyline of the Gospel advancing, but it also helps us understand other letters in the New Testament. So after he takes this journey, he ends up in Athens writing a letter back to to the people in Thessalonica. And he wrote two of them, and we have them in the Bible, First and Second Thessalonians. So, to better understand the context of First and Second Thessalonians, we will get that right here in Acts 17. In the book of Thessalonians, it says that Paul toiled and labored day and night, which gives us a sense he stayed longer than really just kind of three weeks. He was there for a little while. But right here, it's highlighting that he went into the synagogues and he was laboring over the Scriptures. Verse 3, explaining, here's what it means, and proving this is true. Kind of an apologetic, a defense of the Scriptures. And how Jesus, it says, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now the Jews did not like this message because it was undoing all this history that they were kind of coming to the table with. They longed for a Messiah. The Messiah was one who would save people from their sins, who would bring in God's new kingdom. He would take all that was bad and He would begin to reverse that and He would bring in a a new heavens and a new earth eventually when all things would be made new. But they had a problem with Jesus being that guy. They killed Him. So, if you and your people were a part of his assassination and his killing, then all of a sudden, you are a little more hesitant to say, we just killed the very one we were looking for. So, that's what was happening. But Paul was really persuasive, saying, this is the Christ. And it was necessary that he died. You can imagine how it goes, because we have other sermons of his, to die because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. My life by its nature and by its choice separates me from my God, the one I was created to be in relationship with. I am destined to be apart from Him forever unless there's intervention. It's necessary that Jesus had to die because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the Jewish people knew this well. They sacrificed year after year after year and hoped that their sins would be forgiven. But they longed for that once forever sacrifice. That once forever sacrifice where Christ would come and He would once for all take away sin. And so this is what they were staring right in the face of. This message that Jesus was this one. He had to die for them because they were the wreck. He wasn't the sinner. They were. And then to be fronted with the fact that he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead. He has the power to do it. This is the gospel message that was brought. And it's the same message that's for you today. Anyone who trusts in Christ today can be changed today. Do not try to fix yourself up, because when will that be reached? Come to Him as you are. And trust that it's only through His power that lives are changed. We need inside-out change, not outside-in change. We try so hard to make ourselves look good. It's an exhausting battle, isn't it? 
to make ourselves look better than we really are inside, we need someone to come and live inside our hearts and to reverse what sin has, the decay that sin has brought in. We need a new heart. And by trusting in Jesus alone, that new heart comes. Now, how was it received? This is the point of, that we're trying to get at. How is that beautiful gospel message that Christ died for sinners and He's raised from the dead, He's more powerful than we are and than our sin is, and that He can change us and make us new and give us a new message? How is that received? Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Jews and not a few leading women. Bottom line, it was received. And whereas in Jerusalem, which was a primarily Jewish context, which didn't have a lot of uh, clout for women. Women did not take a lot of leadership positions. But here, a primarily Greek context, women had more leadership positions. There were some that were of notoriety. And so what it's saying is there were those of notoriety, there were men and women, there were rich and poor, who were persuaded by these arguments and they were changed. But not everyone found this message so wonderful. Verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, who was actually keeping some believers, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So how is this message received? We'll see, ultimately, it must be received by faith in order for it to have a changing work in the heart. But how was it received by these Jews? It was received with opposition and jealousy. When the gospel goes forth, it is not always loved. And what we see here is it was actually hated. Now, why were they so angry? Because of what I just said. It's undoing their religious framework and the fabric of their religion. And you might say, well, that doesn't seem very offensive to me today. Well, to some of you it probably is. But there are things that the Bible says that are part of the gospel message that are offensive. Such as, Jesus is the only way to God. There are not multiple ways. There's not ends around. This isn't some of the image that some people will say is that, you know, you're grabbing on, we're all grabbing on to a a part of an elephant, but it's still an elephant who's God. I might have the leg, and and that might be an expression of my faith, and others might have this leg, and that might be... Yeah, take that. That was just for effect. Um, okay, that was for anyone who was sleeping, um, including myself. Now I'm awake, you're awake, let's go. Um, so, some will say that what we have then is we just all have a hold of this same thing called, you know, religion that gets us to God. But that's not the truth. It's There is one God who's made Himself known in one clear way, and all you have to do is just begin to lay these other religions beside each other, and one clearly says the only way you get to God is by grace alone, and the rest say you must do something for this God in order that you might be changed. Every single one falls short. There is only one way, and that's offensive to people. What about the Bible is the Word of God? The Bible is God's Word to us. There are other, quote-unquote, Scripture-type things, other books out there that are really good, but there is only one that is the Word of God. And so we have it right here. It is His Word. To some that was loved, and others you're just like, people will say, you're so narrow-minded. But I want you to know, just read it, I pray. Read it for yourself. And God begins to make Himself known through these words. And we will see, these aren't just words. These are alive words. Friends, there are many statements that you might make as you proclaim the Gospel. And they will bring out opposition. Anything that doesn't smell of complete tolerance will bring opposition. And really, anything that calls people to totally alter their lives and surrender it to God Himself, Jesus Christ, will meet opposition by some. And so, it was met by opposition and jealousy. And that is what happens here in the Scriptures. Look at it. In verse, at the end of verse 5, they formed the mob, 
beset the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason, who was a believer who kind of gathered everybody together, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, that means they couldn't find Paul and Silas and Timothy, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers. Heck, I'll just take anybody who believes in this Jesus and I'm going to capture him. And they took him before the city authorities and they shouted and they just tried to get everybody against him. These men who turned the world upside down. How true that statement is. They had no clue. This was just their little city that was being rocked. But the world was genuinely being turned upside down by the power of the gospel. Still is to this very day. These men who turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Yeah, they're tearing up the government. Saying that there is another King Jesus. And the people and the city authorities, they were all torn up inside, disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Basically, you give me a little bit of money, you pay these kind of this fee for all your disturbing stuff that you were doing, you pay that fee, then we'll let you go. Now, was that the end of the opposition? No, it wasn't. Because these people, it said earlier on in verse 5, they were jealous. Jealousy is a poison. And it rots the soul. James says, out of selfish ambition and jealousy, there will be guaranteed 100% disorder and every vile practice. Only destruction comes out of jealousy. Jealousy, they were jealous because they were losing their grip on power and influence. Paul was becoming more influential. The gospel was taking root in ways. They were losing their power. They were losing their influence. And so they were jealous. They wanted what that other person had. That's how jealousy talks. Jealousy says, Why not me? Why can't I have what they have? could be materials, it could be a position, it could be money. But it ends up in an anger against God. Why not me? Or, I wish they could experience what I've experienced because you're going through some trial and you're just really upset that they're not going through a trial. Jealousy all of a sudden stirs up. I wish they would experience what I experience. That's jealousy. And it's rotting your soul. And it's rotting my soul. If those things ever come in the mind or they are verbalized or they're meditated on, it destroys. And jealousy was poisoning them. How else can we talk? The gospel doesn't only address jealousy on the front end and save you, but gospel addresses jealousy all throughout your walk. When it kind of sneaks back in and into the crevices of your mind and you begin to kind of get jealous in the heart, The gospel speaks a different word. God provides everything you need. And He gives it to you in the measure you need it. Philippians 4.19 The way to fight against jealousy is to remember the truth that we can rejoice in diversity because we all don't need to be the same. We need to learn from one another's different life experiences. We can begin to rejoice that God has purposes even in the midst of trial. Not that trial is good in the sense that the pain is something to be rejoiced in, but there is a sense that where you have been comforted, you now can be used to comfort rather than being all upset that this has happened. But there's also rejoicing that God is using other people. We have our road. They have their road. You have your road. But God is ultimately working in your life. He is not absent on that road. There's how you begin to fight jealousy. God has purposes. God is at work. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. The gospel is the only thing that helps you know that He loves you. He died for you. Don't let the simple message of the gospel bring you to a sense of numbness that it cannot massage into you day after day that He loves you. He loves you. He cares for you. And even though you're going through pain and you can't figure it all out, He loves you. But the Jews could not get past this. Jealousy was rotting their soul. And look at the degree it took them. 
Verse 10. So the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So you get it. Paul and Barnabas were sent away so that they are Paul and Silas. Sorry. Paul and Silas were sent away by night to Berea that they might be protected. The brothers sent them out. Now, these Jews, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. But look at verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too. That's what jealousy does. They're totally altering their lives. They're traveling 40 some odd miles to get here just so that they can stir up trouble again and to try to keep Paul and uh, Silas from uh, speaking this good news. It's miserable, this sense of jealousy. But God's gospel is more powerful. So some receive it with opposition and jealousy, and you just need to know that. But others, they receive it with eagerness and examination. Because look at what happened in verse 11. These Jews were more noble than those at Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness and examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What a wonderful statement about a group of people. Eager to know God. Search the Scriptures daily to see what was truth. Some of you might have heard it said, but I think it's very helpful. It should be our prayer that God would make us Berean-like. That we would hunger to know the Scriptures. There would be an eagerness to get into God's Word. And it would happen on a daily basis, a sense of not as a religious right, but as a relationship with our great God who cares for us. Eagerness and examination of the Scriptures. As the Gospel goes forth, it usually brings forth those who don't like it and those who are eager. In my house, uh, my backyard is filled with rocks. It didn't used to be that way. There was grass. And yet, over the few months that we have been in this home, all of a sudden, all of the construction debris after rain has begun to work itself up. So that my beautiful grass is now rocky soil. Okay? And so we spend a lot of our time now with a hoe just kind of trying to get these rocks out of there. And it is just disturbing. Every time it rains, there's some new discovery. It's like there's this piece of board here and we picked up roof shingle here. And, you know, sometimes it's like you begin to pull and you just pull and things are coming. It's like, really, they didn't even bother to throw that away. They just wanted to cover it over. It's just, what is going on? And I began to think as I was frustratingly hoeing rocks, and I was just like, you know, what were they thinking? I was like, how, God, are you going to redeem this? (laughs) Because, you know, I'm sweating, and it's hot, and I don't like this. And he began to, this image came to my mind. And it was the image of the gospel rains falling, and what the true, what's really underneath kind of comes to the surface. And there was this sense that, There was this opposition, there's the hardness of the rocks, and then there's this sense of growth with the grass that was coming up, and there was this both-and kind of metaphor image kind of smacking me in the face. And I was just struck by the gospel does have this effect. It has this effect of, for some, is an aroma of life, and for others, it's an aroma of death. But it kind of calls people to really evaluate what they really believe. And this is what the gospel was doing. Some will not want to evaluate it. Opposition and jealousy. Others, there's a sense of eagerness. And what the Bereans wanted to really see is, is this really true? Which is beautiful because this is a reasonable word. You can look at it and examine it and your mind can be affirmed that Christianity is intellectually true. It is reasonable. It is consistent even though, to some, when they hear it, it's foolishness. To others, it's the wisdom of God. And so what we pray for is soft hearts to hear, so that as the gospel rains fall, there's a sense of 
examining the Scriptures. Now, for us, friends, when it comes to the Scriptures, we all have blind spots. We all have blind spots in our own lives. You do not see your life completely clearly. You just need to own up to that. You have blind spots. And when we separate ourselves from the Word of God, the blind spots get bigger. There are consequences to not devouring, to being eagerly examining the Scriptures. The Bible says, therefore, on the other side, there's fruit from diving into the Word of God. Psalm 19, I encourage you to commit it to memory because it will help you time after time after time go to the Bible when you don't want to. Because the Bible is said in there, it revives the soul. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It makes wise the simple. Therefore, if you're not in the Word, you're getting dumber, spiritually speaking. You're getting duller, spiritually speaking. Your eyes are growing dimmer. The blind spots are getting more pronounced. There are consequences to not having a diet of the Scriptures, which is why it's a wonderful prayer. Oh God, make us Berean-like. That we would not only have... What our minds are wondering about stimulated, but that faith is brought up. Because what happened when they studied the Scriptures? Verse 12. Many of them, therefore, had faith. They believed by looking at the Scriptures. It said earlier in um, Acts 17 that when Paul took the Gospel, he took it by explaining the Scriptures. And the Bible came alive. And they believed. Friends, what we need is not just one-time faith that kind of gets us into Christianity. We need faith to trust God when we don't know what decision to make. We need faith to trust God with our finances. We need faith to trust God with our children. With our marriages. We need faith to trust God to take Him at His word. That He will provide for our needs. And not dive into some immoral way to, to get money that would be some, you know... Some, some type of uh, money laundering or some type of pushing ahead and pushing others aside so I can get ahead or any other type of way to make money that's not pleasing to God. We need faith to speak the gospel and believe that it is power, not me. We need faith not to be afraid, but to be people of courage. And the only place we receive that faith is as we are in God's Word around God's people. We need to be Berean-like people. So, some receive it with opposition and jealousy, others with eagerness and examination. And then, what happens? Look at verse 14. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way because these Jews were attacking them. And he went by sea to Athens, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who took him, they took him as far as Athens, and after dropping him off, they go back and they tell Silas and Timothy, come and join him as soon as possible, because now Paul's he's in Athens, but he's by himself. Now, what would you do if you were by yourself? Okay, remember, you just got chased out of Thessalonica. You just got chased out of Berea for doing one simple thing, communicating the good news of Jesus. Would you probably want to sit in your house and wait till the cavalry comes? <laughs> a sense of what do I do here? What does Paul do? Remarkable, driven by love. Verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting at Athens, his spirit was provoked because he saw all over the city there were idols. Statues that they were worshipping. Some said there may be even up to 30,000 different statues in Athens full of idols. And so love drove him to speak the good news. Now, as he was speaking, look at verse 18. Here's the last way some people receive it. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him. They took him to the Areopagus and they said, now why don't you teach us? Teach us what you know. They made fun of him. They made fun of him. Words can cut, and they are painful. What was it in Paul that when he was called a babbler, all of a sudden he had a sense of confidence to keep going on and share the good news with them? 
It's because he knew the gospel. The gospel was not just a message at the beginning of Christianity. It was a message he needed over and over that he is accepted by God. So when somebody else calls him a name, he knows what God thinks about him. And he can look at them and he can be broken in his heart. Look at all these false gods they're worshiping. They do not know the living and true God. So how else would they act? They'll make fun of people. They'll just try to make thinking about God a sport rather than a relationship. No wonder. Oh, that our hearts would be gripped with that kind of love. And that kind of confidence. That when we're called names, we don't give back in their face. We don't call them names back, even if they're religious names. We don't call them names back. We tell them the good news and we love them with God Himself. Well, this is what Paul had. So how did they receive it? There was opposition and jealousy. There was eagerness. And some, there was resistance initially. But then look at verse 32. After he shares the gospel. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, they kept calling him names. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. And so when Paul went out from their midst, some joined him and believed. Friends, when you share the good news, don't let initial opposition make you feel like you failed. How many of you, if you were honest in your own story, when the good news first came to you, you didn't like it at all. But God in His grace continues to pursue. And so what do we do as an extension of that? We continue to pursue. Continue to love. Because some will resist. But then others, that resistance will be broken and they will believe. So quickly as we seek to go to look at sharing the gospel message, just a few things that now we've gone through the whole story. And we can just note, bullet by bullet, how did Paul go? Well, number one, he went in confidence, not in fear. Because he knew the gospel was at work in his life. So how did he share it? He shared it with confidence. Number two, how did he share it? He shared it with an understanding of the context around him. When he shared the gospel with Jews, he talked a lot more from the Old Testament. When now he shared the the gospel with these, these Greeks at the Areopagus, this place where there was just, it was a place where you just bantered back and forth. It was generally like a sport, all of these philosophical ideas. And so when he approached them, he understood there was these bunch of gods and I need to start kind of at the beginning. I can't presuppose anything. He understood his context and he understood what was driving that culture. He understood that philosophy was driving that culture, just all this thinking. And so he began to engage them there. I remember when I was in Minneapolis, I was a huge college sports fan, still am. But in Tennessee, we did not have really a professional team to root for, which is where I grew up. So, I was in Minneapolis, there was the Vikings. We lived only a few blocks from the Metrodome. And so, everybody could give a rip about college sports, but they love the NFL. So I would talk to people about sports when I worked at Home Depot there, and they didn't care about the college game I watched this weekend because they had the they had the Minnesota Gophers, and they weren't so good. So you know I'm not going to talk there. But did you see the Viking game? Did they, and I was just like, no, I could care less about the NFL. Well, what I realized is that specifically in urban context, especially as in Raleigh, when we came, had people coming down from the north and Jersey and Philly and New York, NFL sports, that was the thing. And so I was totally going to be left out of all, you know, conversations over lunch at Home Depot if I didn't brush up on my NFL. And so to this day, I love the NFL now, but it all began by seeing these people that I just wanted to get a common footing with. And I realized I didn't have one. So you better start loving NFL. Anyway, what did Paul do? He saw what was driving their culture and he joined them on their territory, on their turf. He began to engage in in philosophy. And so, friends, we must be a people who understand our context and understand what's driving our culture and meet them there. 
You can come and you can try to present the gospel in just this cookie cutter box kind of way, but not address the cries of somebody's heart. I just encourage you, get to know these people. Say, why aren't you embracing Christianity? What is so offensive to you? I understand I had a journey like that where it was like that for a season. What's going on with you in your life? And just listen. And then you'll be able to see how the gospel applies to their situation. This is what Paul did. He was confident in Christ's love for him. He understood the context. And then, what do we see in verse 16? Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Now, jump to verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, there's really nothing to love about all this idol worship because it's all falsehood. But Paul is able to find something commendable. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. <laughs> You've got more gods than I've got skin cells, but you are very religious, okay? I want to tell you you're very religious, so I'm going to meet you there and commend you for it. But what you need to know is there is a God that you do not know, that you haven't worshipped. And it's really the only one who can change your life. And so Paul finds something commendable in where they are. And then he approaches it with both love and grief. Grief that they are so broken. And love, love that the gospel is able to change their hearts. So I must embrace the difficulty and take it to them. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. You're going to be in awkward situations when you talk to your neighbor about the gospel. One guy used this phrase and I just loved it. We have to embrace the awkward. Okay? Just embrace it. It's going to be that way. Ask a neighbor how you can pray for them. Engage them about what, where do they find significance and hope and purpose and love. Because when you love someone, you must give them God ultimately. Meet their needs, listen to them, but we must give them God. And that's why this last one is here. We must embrace God as the gospel. When Paul gives them love, he gives them God. That's why I wanted you to read it out loud. You read truth after truth after truth after truth about God. And you read it out loud. And I'm just praying that God would rivet the heart with it. Because here's this God. I summarized it in just one sentence. These are all the points. And I'm not going to go through them like points, points. They're just a sentence. Our all-powerful God, creator of all things, is not needy. But He is all-wise, He is all-satisfying, and He is all-loving. Look at how it pops off the page with the message that Paul gave. Our all-powerful God, the God who made the world and everything in it, that's power. He's Lord of heaven and earth. Everything that you can see down, everything that you can see up, He is Lord over it. King over it. These Epicureans, they didn't think there was anything over anything. Matter was eternal. It was all kind of a level playing field. And now he's saying, no, there is one true God and He's over everything and therefore you must submit your life to Him. And He does not live in temples made by man. Our God is not homeless. He's not looking for a place to live in the sense that He doesn't know where to go. And He needs us to make buildings. And you know, we at TCC, we tested that theory of whether God really can meet anywhere. Because in our first four years, we had nine locations. We used to say, if you can find us, you can worship with us. We met in community centers. We met in gyms with no air condition. We met in theaters. We met in what is now Beasley's Chicken and Honey, which was a condemned building at the time. Our kids were doing nursery among... Um, People who were homeless and didn't have a place to stay. I mean, we had all kinds of things. And you know what? God met us. Every single place. Because our God is not constricted by place. Our God lives in our hearts. That's why we have hope of change. That's why we come together. Is to benefit from a God who has made His home here. And changes us from the inside out. This is our God. He made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything. You don't serve a needy God. 
He is not in need. You can't control Him, nor should you. You can't manipulate Him. You can't add to Him. There is no deficiency in Him. He has no needs. Therefore, He can supply all of yours. Have you ever thought, man, how is there going to be peace in this relationship? If He can speak the mountains into being, He is more powerful than the strife that's happening in your marriage or with your kids or among one another. This is incredibly practical to see our God as all-powerful and not having any need at all. He is not needy. And so He can supply all of yours. Wisdom for decisions? He can give it to you. Love for the unlovely? He can give it to you. Freedom from bitterness? He can do that. Overcoming pornography or overcoming addiction? He can do that. Our God is the Creator of all things, including you. You're dependent upon Him. He is dependent upon no one. And He is the provider of everything. This is our God. And so, friends, we sang it over and over. Come to me. Carry your burden to Him. Run into His arms. You don't do for Him. He works and does in you that then you might love well. One way to express that He is not needy and we are dependent is just to continually be a people of prayer. Prayer is our constant declaration. He is the creator of all things and we are needy. So our God is all powerful. He's not needy, but he's all wise. Look at verse 26. From one nation of mankind to live on the earth, uh, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted boundaries of their dwelling place. Our God is wise and knows where we should live. And he sets our boundaries. You live where you live. This is the very tension we talked about last week. You lived where you live because you chose to live there. Some you wanted to kind of live there, but you really didn't want to live there. Others you really want to live there and you love where you live. But you are where you are ultimately. According to this text, yes, it was your decision. And you're responsible for that decision. But ultimately, that is established by God. So where you live... Right now, God has you there for some reason. I don't know the time. He knows the time. I don't know the where. He knows the where. But where you are is where God has you. He is in control. That's what this says, right? Determined, allotted periods, time frame, and the boundaries. Your property will go this far and no further. You will live here. He loves you. He cares for you. He is all wise even when we are not. So we must get close to Him. And He is all satisfying. Look at verse 27. That they should seek God and hope that they might feel their way toward Him. The temptation would be if God is so good and holy other and so big, He doesn't want anything to do with us who are so small. There couldn't be something further from the truth. He has created all things that all things might exist for Him. You were created for Him, that you might seek Him and find Him. To those who are insecure, those who struggle with a constant sense of failure, those who are fragile in their hearts, know this, God wants you. He loves you. He doesn't focus on your failures. He doesn't want you rehearsing those. He wants you seeking after Him. Do you see the difference? Focusing in on how bad you are or an active pursuit of who God is. One gives life. The other one just makes you miserable. As you seek God, He will expose certain things that need to change, but He will help you and He will grow you. Seek after Him. He wants you to know Him. And ultimately, He is the finder. He is the one that grips His people. He is the one that will care for you. And take you where you need to be. And so, friends, He is an all-satisfying God. He is the one who meets people's needs and calls everyone to repentance. And He is all-loving. Because, see, here at the end, although we're called to repent from our sins, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man He has appointed. And of this we have an assurance because Jesus is raised from the dead. The most loving thing we can do is say there will come a day every... And we prayed this before we came in here as a worship team. 
God says, be still and know that I am God. But there will come a day when every person will know that He is God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. The most loving thing we can do is deliver that kind of message with care and love. More love for them. But the beauty is that that message doesn't end there. There's a way of escape. There is hope for you. Because Jesus is alive. He did raise from the dead. It is a loving message that He came and died and rose from the dead that we might be saved. So what will you do with the Gospel? Will you embrace God as your only hope? Will you share it in His strength, in love and in wisdom? And will you receive it today as life for you? Not just entrance, but life day after day after day. What will you do with the Gospel? Let's pray. Father, thank You that You do love us and that You do care for us. And right now I do ask that You will guide us into a deeper relationship with You. Father, I ask that You will help us help us to know You. Father, I pray those who are discouraged in this room they would see how big and powerful You are and how all-satisfying You are and how loving You are, how wise You are, and how You want to be in our lives. Alleviate discouragement. For those who need comfort, God, I pray. I pray, God, that You would meet them right now in their pain. Father, I ask that for those who are burdened with someone that needs to know the Gospel, I pray that they would love them by listening. I pray they would love them by speaking. I pray they would love them by demonstrating how God's generous towards us, by serving them. And so, Father, I do ask that in these moments right now, we would not be filled with jealousy, but we would be filled with humble eagerness to dive into Your Word, to know You, and then to make You known. So teach us now. Align our hearts with you as we take of the Lord's Supper. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This Lord's Supper is a time when we are able to say kind of...